in here. We're in a faith that shakes, part 33. We're finishing up Acts 19 and getting into Acts 20 tonight. I will not be long. I guarantee you that. And I hope you are taking advantage of this uh, season of prayer and fasting with LifePoint and uh, doing that with a, a, a group of folks that love the Lord and want the best. Uh, join in. Take advantage of that. Fast, pray, seek the Lord, watch what God does. We have a great, great year uh, this year that's that's coming up. It's going to be incredible. And so uh, last time we looked at uh, Acts 19 where there was this incredible uh, uh, season of uh, spiritual warfare, okay, there was the seven sons of Sceva, remember that story, we looked at the seven sons of Sceva, and uh, they tried to cast out demons by Jesus whom Paul preaches, it's a fascinating story, I'm not going to reteach it, but fascinating story, and the, the end result of that was the seven sons of the high priest Sceva failed, and they were beaten up and stripped and kicked out of this house, they went to exercise this demon, but this demon basically exercised them, and the result of that was great fear came on the place, the name of Jesus was glorified, and people, believers, took their secret stashes of sinful things, in this case, witchcraft and books regarding witchcraft and false religion, they, they, these were Jesus people, believers, and they took their secret stashes, $5 million worth, and burned them and consecrated their lives unto God. It was amazing. And I brought out the fact that there are secret stashes in believers, even in this house. And the word of the Lord is, fear the name of God. Get real about this thing. Don't be fake. Don't be preaching the Jesus of somebody else. Get your relationship with Jesus squared up. Get rid of the secret stash. Get rid of it and turn all the way to Jesus and watch what God does. The word of God prevailed. It was very, very powerful. And so we're going to pick up after that, starting in verse 21, And I want to say a prayer over it right now in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that you would just move powerfully, God. In the few minutes we have left, I pray that you'd speak through your word to your people, God. And I give you praise for that. And we ask it all in your precious name. Everyone say amen. Now, I I do want to say this. uh, Brother Bernard, David Bernard, is a friend of ours. And he's been to this church before. That's going to be the 15th of January. Isn't that right? Didn't I get the date right? 15th of January. Listen. Listen, I don't do this all the time, but you know when I do, uh, it's important. Please be here on the 15th of January. Please be, because David thinks we have a church, and I want want to prove him right, right? So you guys show up that day, all right? Please help me out. Thank you. All right, so verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, my wife has told me those words before, I must also see Rome. I just took her to Toronto 
But she's still telling me, I must also see Rome. She wants to go there really bad. Now, I want you to notice this. Paul, notice what it says, purposed in the Spirit. One translation says he was compelled by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. We're soon going to see where the Holy Spirit, through prophetic words, warns Paul about going to Jerusalem. Gives him some ominous insight as to what's going to take place when he does get there. But those prophetic words did not say, do not go to Jerusalem. Rather, these were warnings of what awaited him there. Verse 21 of chapter 19 makes it clear. It was the Holy Spirit that compelled him to go in the first place. And I might add, the Holy Spirit does not always call us to the easy. Does not always call us to do easy things. Often the Holy Spirit calls us to places where there is risk, where there is danger, where there are hardships. But I want to encourage you, if God calls you to a tough place, go there. And go there boldly, confidently, and in the name of Jesus. Because Paul would later write to the church from this area in Galatians 6 and say this in verses 7 through 9, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. My brothers and sisters, following the Spirit, that compelling, that leading of the Spirit is like sowing seed. And it always produces godly, powerful fruit. God is not mocked. Now, I will say this too. Likewise, resisting that still, small voice, disobeying that voice of God that you've heard deep on the inside is like sowing seed also, and it always produces fruit as well. But it's not as pleasant, right? It's not even pleasant at all. So, Follow that still small voice, even if it takes you to difficult places, because God, in the, in the end, in the long haul, you will come out victorious. Paul would write later to one of his ministry partners on this particular journey in 2 Timothy 4 and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice, it was a fight, right? We used to sing that old song, it's a battlefield, brother. Not a recreation room. It's a fight. Some people want to become a Jesus follower and, and just it's all roses. It's a fight. It, there are struggles. There are difficulties. Following God, obeying the word, obeying the direction of the spirit will lead you to some places where you have to put your dukes up and you got to fight. You got to fight. He said, I have Fought the good fight. He called it a good fight, a fight for good. I have finished the race. 
uh, we did the color run. That's not a real race. Anthony has run triathlons and all these other kind of running races. Some of you have done marathons and races or uh, running a race. Brendan, Brendan, I've got Brendan and Brandon and Brandon's and, you know. But Brendan, running a race is difficult. You, you go to Fleet Feet and you get these nice shoes. And uh, I used to think that the shoes would make me run fast when I was a kid. I'd go, I'd go get me a brand new pair of, back in those days, you got to understand, pre-Nike days. You young children, you don't even remember anything like that. But pre-Nike days, I'd go to J.C. Penney. Woo! And I'd get me some shoes. I thought I was going to run like the wind, El Guapo. Just run like the wind. I realized it wasn't the shoes that made the difference. Running a race is tough. You know, oh, I got an ache. I got a, oh, I hurt. You got to push through it. Paul said, I fought the fight, I finished the race, and I kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So there is a prize, but, but you got to finish the race. you got to fight the fight. you got to follow the Lord through those difficult times. Verse 22, so... He sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. We almost named Alexander Erastus. Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. We've already met Timothy. We've talked about him. Erastus, though, was an important fellow. At one time he was, and this is in your Bible, Romans 16, 23, he was the public works commissioner for the city of Corinth. Isn't that cool? He was that guy. And then verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. We've seen this term, the way, before. It was another term used for Christianity. Christians were called people of the way, referring to Jesus being the way, truth, and the life. And then we have this commotion that breaks out, verses 24 through 41. And because of my limited time, We'll just look at this quickly. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods, which are made with hands. Again, Paul has confronted the idolatry of this region in a very powerful way. You know, he dialogued with them. We've looked at that. But he also confronted the idols. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Remember Diana's temple was seven times the size of the Parthenon, uh, five five to seven times the size of the Parthenon, massive, gargantuan place, and 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 they worshipped Diana, and and here Diana is in danger of losing her stronghold. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, "Great is Diana of the Ephesians!" So they go into a worship service for Diana. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius. Aristarchus Macedonius, 
Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander, now we did name Alexander Alexander, out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesians or Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? This was actually a meteorite. It was a big rock that they had put in the middle of this temple. They said she looked like, this rock looked like Diana and, and uh, all kind of perversion that went on. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar there being no reason which may be may given uh, to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So it's got this real anticlimactic end, but here's what was going on. The, the silversmiths who made money, the economics were on the line because Diana was losing popularity. Paul's ministry was having a radical effect on their bottom line. And so they wanted to create a ruckus, and they wanted to get Paul in trouble. But what ended up happening was because of the confusion, it had a a riotous appearance, which would have gotten them in trouble with the Roman proconsuls and could have caused them more trouble than Paul was causing them, at least in the short run. The economics came into play. The fear of Roman retribution came into play, and as a result, it all just kind of, so it was this massive, big deal, and then it just kind of fizzled. Let me ask you something. You ever had something like that? You were worried, sick about it. It's like, oh, this is a major deal. And then it just kind of fizzled out, and God kind of took care of it, and it was all done. Those things happen from time to time, don't they? They're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, where do you want to go to eat? Like it all worked out, right? It just all worked out, and that's kind of what happened here. So we're going to jump into verse 20 and not spend much time there. I have 10 minutes left, y'all. Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Chapter 20 is a sad, sad chapter. It is a chapter of goodbyes. It is a chapter of grown men hugging each other and crying and saying, we're going to miss you so bad. Godspeed. Now, isn't that ironic that here we are in chapter 20, the night that little Dr. Alexander is about to go away. Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, I read that, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, 
and departed. Paul wanted to do four things. He wanted to, one, leave Ephesus. Two, preach in Troas on his way to Macedonia. Three, he wanted to meet Titus at Troas with a report from Corinth to understand what was going on there. And fourthly, he wanted to continue collecting an offering for Judea. And there's reference for, references for this in Second Corinthians and First Corinthians and Romans. So he had this agenda. He had a to-do list in verses 2 and 3. Let's look at this. Now, when he had gone over the region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, let's stop there. He went over the region. He had gone over the region. That took time. This is no airplane. Couldn't fly a thousand miles. Uh, he, he was either in it. You know, it was it was his feet or horsepower that was taking him where he wanted to go. So you're looking at probably um, a good amount of time to go over the region. And then he spent three months somewhere around there, probably at Corinth that was the capital of Achaia. And these are probably winter months when ships were not regularly sailing. And so he's he's got a timing issue he's dealing with. Many scholars believe that during this period of time, Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans. And once again, he deals with Jews plotting against him, his own countrymen, his brothers, plotting against him and listen, he's been collecting money now for Judea, Jerusalem, the brothers in Judea, and this offering is becoming sizable. So it's possible, it doesn't say, but I'm just thinking out loud, that his Jewish brothers not only are looking at stopping him from preaching the gospel, but they also have a, an eye on his bank account on the funds that he's toting around because he's got a considerable amount of money by this time. So probably they are looking at the money. So he's got this influence and he has some money on him and he's got some folks that are giving him the evil eye. But here's the cool thing. Paul gathers together again a team. Paul was always gathering, putting together a team. Now, God helped him with that, but he wasn't a lone ranger. He always surrounded himself with others to help him accomplish what God had called him to do. And so here he puts together a team. I was taught, I was mentored into understanding, if you can't build a team, you can't build a church. I've tried the parachute drop-in Lone Ranger approach. That's very difficult. But if you can get a team together, God can do some awesome things through a team. It is true. Teamwork makes the dream work. If you can get a team together, then you can actually accomplish way more than you just by yourself. LifePoint is built on powerful teams. We have our dream team, our lead team, our core team. Our dream team is amazing. They impress people. You come on this parking lot. You come onto the campus, onto the property. 
And there's somebody that's assigned to greet you, to meet you, to help you park, to get you an umbrella if it's raining. And these teams fire on all cylinders. I I hope we do that every Sunday all the time because we want people this year to feel welcome home, right? We want them to feel like they're special. This is a place where they belong. This is a place where people care, even about the smallest details. Teams are very important. LifePoint has built a various teams. Dream team, like I said, lead, lead team, and then our core team. Paul's team was diverse. It included Jews and Gentiles, men of little means, men of considerable means. We will see throughout his writings, there were women on his teams, there were men on his teams. God used these people, gathered them together And it wasn't just all Paul. It wasn't just all Erastus. It wasn't just all Timothy. It was them together. And God would do great things. Let me just tell you something. God is going to do great things this year at LifePoint through you and through me and through us. The scripture says he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all, plural. We can ask or think according to the power that works in us plural, right? So the team is the way to go. Very, very, very powerful. And so let's look at verses 4 through 6. And so Patar of, oh my Lord, it's 757. I got to get to where Paul preaches till midnight. Here I am rushed trying to get to the part where Paul preaches all day and all night. See, if you guys really cared about the word, Oh, what? I'm just teasing. Sopatar Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, Timothy, Tychius, Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we, and that would be, this is a we passage, Paul and Luke, sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So they acknowledged these Jewish feast days. Let's hit 7 through 12. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until, everybody say it, midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. I've never seen anybody fall asleep in my preaching. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, break, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive. They were not a little comforted. That means they were greatly comforted. Paul spoke till midnight. Chuck Smith suggests Eutychus was deprived of oxygen because he was sitting in a window. This is an open window. And it says there were many lamps burning. And so the fumes are coming out the window, and Eutychus is sitting there, and, and he starts, you know, rocking. And it says he fell into a deep sleep. It, surely it wasn't he was bored with Paul. Maybe he was just working all day and he was tired. But whatever the reason, 
he falls, he slips into a deep sleep and goes right out the window from the third story and is taken up dead. He died. Probably he broke his neck. And that's all we have time for tonight. So you're going to have to be here next Wednesday night as we pick up the awesome story of Eutychus, the young man who got bored or gassed at Paul's sermon and fell out of a third-story window.